Just a warning, this episode is going to be all about the rise of the machines. And no, we're not going to be talking about Terminator 3, at least not exactly. We're going to be joined by Thomas Ridd, professor in the Department of War Studies at King's College London, who has a new book out on the topic this summer. It's a sweeping history of man's ever-growing dependence on technology and the history of the ideas behind that. Welcome to the Cybersecurity Podcast, where we go beyond the headlines to interview some of the key leaders and thinkers in the field. I'm Peter Singer, strategist and senior fellow at New America. And I'm Sarah Sorcher, deputy editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's section on security and privacy in the digital age. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Thomas Ridd himself. He chats with us about how, with every passing day, machines are getting smarter and more autonomous. That could have some profound implications for our security in both cyberspace and in real life. But first, I want to hear from Sarah about some of the more interesting things that you've been up to since we last met. What have you learned? Where have you been? Well, at Passcode, we've been really busy and doing lots of interesting stories on security and privacy. And I wanted to plug one in particular by a contributor for Passcode, Nathaniel Mott, who wrote about um, all of the privacy implications that people are starting to wrestle with now with the eavesdropping personal assistance, um, the Alexa Amazon device, for instance. All right. So are they listening to what I'm saying or hackers taking away all the information? Uh, What's going on here? Yeah. So, I mean, it's an AI powered bot. So that fits with the theme of our episode today. And it's listening to what you say. It answers your commands, your questions. All you have to just say is Alexa. And it. No, I don't care if Alexa is someone else. Right. Well, so what's interesting is so someone else. Yeah. So you might have agreed to have this eavesdropping bot in your home. But what happens? This piece is about what happens if you have house guests. Are you obligated to tell them, hey, I have an eavesdropping robot in my house that's listening to everything you say? Because really what happens to that data is still very unclear. And um, you know, people might think that having a robot assistant like that is creepy and have some sort of Orwellian implications. Or do you tell your child's uh, classmates who come over to play that, you know, there's something listening to and potentially, you know, storing their conversations. All they would hear at my house is Pokemon this, Pokemon that. So uh, hackers go away. Um, What's your take on the on the etiquette side of it? The real big question right now is what are the norms when it comes to privacy that are developing today in the digital age? Are you supposed to tell your neighbors, hey, I have this and have them give some sort of consent? Are you supposed to power it off whenever you have other people? Um, Are you supposed to, you know, should everybody be required to read terms of conditions that enters your home? Really just not, you know, I think more than your own personal choices for your privacy and what information you're willing to give up. It's, you know, are you putting anybody else's privacy in jeopardy or having them inadvertently? Are you part of the problem if you're inadvertently, you know, letting people come into this potentially privacy implicating zone um, with these types of robots and other smart devices that are in people's homes? So it's a really interesting story and people should check it out. All right. Um, Peter, what about you? What is something interesting that you've seen or learned this last month? My trips took me everywhere from Sweden uh, to Orlando. The Sweden one was uh, an event with the military and NATO there, uh, besides staying in the hotel where ABBA was formed. Exciting. Okay. Uh, what I was 
more struck by was how concern over cybersecurity is crossing more and more with the hard security side, particularly um, when you're in Sweden, it's basically looking at the threat from Russia and how in the US, we're looking at it um, more in terms of information warfare, interference in elections. They're looking at it more in terms of the fear of uh, actual takedown. What does it mean for their command and control literally on the military side? Uh, the other trek was to Orlando, where uh, the ISC squared event was information um, security Congress. And this is a gathering of people who work uh, and teach on information security. But what's striking is how it is within a larger conference on security overall, so kind of homeland security. And as you go through this massive convention hall, uh, two things stand out. The convention hall is filled with you know cybersecurity company booths, but more it's the companies that make the fences for buildings, the cameras. And so much of it is moving to the overall internet of things. So there's all these different companies selling robots but yet we have the cybersecurity companies that are going, oh, by the way, everything you're buying has more and more vulnerabilities to become concerned with. And does that cross over into the physical space as well? I mean, if you have these connected systems in your home, is, does that kind of echo some of the concerns that other countries and this country are thinking about when it comes to, you know, security, but on a more personal level? I think one of the aspects that struck me um, that connects all of this is um, by the very fact that you have the information security pod uh, within this broader security discussion. Um, and the same thing you see on the home side is that for too many organizations, for too many businesses, the people that are thinking about security, think about it in the old uh, fences, cameras manner and that's true either they're not buying or the people in charge of buying security, whether it is for you know a big department store to how you and I think about our home, we put it through this very traditional, what are the objects? What are the things that we're going to buy? And um, for many of these organizations, of course, they don't have the expertise or the inclination. And that, that disconnect um, was uh, really evident. And obviously, the companies, particularly the experts who work on the information security side, are working hard at it. But there's also sort of this, um, are we going to be playing? catch up the same way that we did in the regular old cybersecurity side. Yeah, that's really interesting. And now we're joined by our guest, Thomas Ridd. Thomas is a professor in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. He's worked at places that range from the Rand Corporation in Washington, D.C. to Hebrew University in Atchalem in Jerusalem. He's also the author of multiple works on cybersecurity policy and strategy, including his 2013 book, Cyber War Will Not Take Place, articles on topics ranging from deterrence to the more recent uh, DNC hack, and now has a new book, Rise of the Machines, which tells the sweeping story of how cybernetics, a late 1940s theory of machines, came to incite anarchy and war half a century later. Thanks for joining us, Thomas. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So why don't we jump right into it? Uh, tell us about this new book. Why write on the theory of cybernetics in the 1940s? You know, what does it have to tell us about the world today and particularly the world of cybersecurity today? So I wrote the book because I often got this question from students and colleagues and even government officials. Where does cyber even come from? What does it mean, this phrase? And the explanation that a lot of people... Um, 
probably would come up with, namely that it's a phrase coined by William Gibson in one of his, one of his novels, Neuromancer and Burning Chrome in 1982. Um, that just doesn't really cut a lot of mustard, this uh, theory, because ultimately the debates, uh, the visions and the technologies that drove um, you know, this, uh, uh, the vision of uh, our technical future in the 1980s are much, much older. So I took it back to the beginnings. To and he, he's smashing together two pre-existing words, cybernetics and space. Exactly. And he's using the word cybernetics in his own novels more often than cyberspace, in fact. So um, that's, that was his inspiration as well. So I'm taking it back to the, to, the, to the real origins in World War II. And it's also just a nice loop because it really started with a conflict and military research in that most, you know, that defining 20th century conflict, World War II. And what are some of the um, implications and uh, aspects that matter to the field today? I think there are a couple, but the biggest one for me is that we have this permanent temptation to project our hopes and our fears into, the, into our machines. So cybernetics, as you said, is a, is a theory of machines. And very early on, the pioneers, Norbert Wiener and others, um, expected their machine would be as intelligent as human beings. In fact, the idea of the singularity, that moment when machines would become even more intelligent than humans, is also a cybernetic idea from the 60s. So a lot of the ideas that guide our work, artificial intelligence, um, for instance, come from, from that original source. So it's just helpful to to know um, about the failures and the histories in order to avoid history repeating itself. And so at Passcode, we published an excerpt of your new book and talked about how the tech vanguard turned public key cryptography into one of the most potent political ideas of the 21st century. Why don't you tell us about this so-called cypherpunk revolution and how some of that ideology impacts us today? Yeah. So in the in the late 1970s already, this idea emerged that um, there's this space inside the machines. That's what William Gibson uh, with, in Neuromancer fed off of this, uh, this notion that there's a space inside network machines that, um, that offers new possibilities to us. So cyberspace, of course, needed to be protected. And the protection arrived around the same time with the idea of public key cryptography that could then be used to erect walls and keep cyberspace from crumbling, so to speak, uh, and to keep especially the federal government out. Because a lot of these um, people who drove these initial ideas came from a countercultural background in California, and uh, their main threat model, if you like, was the federal government, because at the time, you know, experimenting with new lifestyles um, and including uh, drugs. There was a strange link between drugs and technology in the 1980s and, uh, and 90s. So that's where, where it came from. And how are you seeing that play out, if at all, today? Are you seeing any echoes of that time in the debates we're having now about encryption and everything else? Yeah, absolutely. So the cypherpunks, as they became known, an email list um, that, that uh, advocated the use of um, cryptography to, to, to liberate um, you know, to, into an extreme form of individualism. The sovereign individual is a phrase that came up uh, in the 1990s in that context. Julian Assange was on that email list, and his thinking is shaped by the cypherpunks. Um, 
many of the things that Snowden says, uh, if you study, if, if we look at his statements uh, in a number of different forums, really could almost be copy pasted from the from the late 1990s to today. So the same applies to Ross Ulbricht, the, um, the person who ran the um, the Silk Road, the Darknet marketplace. A lot of young people have essentially carried, or younger people have carried these ideas from the 1990s forward into the present. So today, but we're not calling them cypherpunks anymore, but they really are. So you're here in Washington, D.C. for a session on cybersecurity and artificial intelligence. And there's two questions I want to ping out from that. The first is, what do you see as the, the future in this space? But the second is that um, you, you've, you've said something remarkable uh, in front of me where you described your book as um, a bullshit detector, uh, that in the past there were these various fads, intellectual fads, ideas that took off and um, uh, became almost cult-like, even though there wasn't a basis for them. So I want to also, you know, I want to separate that from where do you see AI and cybersecurity headed? But then the second question is, what are the fads? What are the things that we need to have our BS detectors up on that are actually kind of the false gods, the false cults ahead of us? So one thing that I find fascinating is in this cybersecurity, more technical cybersecurity community or, you know, among th- in- in- uh, incident responders and, and digital forensic experts and whatnot, um, they have a very healthy skepticism when it comes to automation and machine learning. They appreciate, yes, there may be opportunities to automate parts of the part of the defensive mechanism, intrusion detection, for instance, in, in, a, in intrusion detection systems are a form of automation. But they know they're always up against sophisticated human adversaries that want to outsmart their automation, their machine, if you like. So they... They appreciate, yes, automation can do something for me. Artificial intelligence ultimately is a form of automation. Um, I'm aware of the many debates around that, so but, I, but I'll just keep it at that. But they also understand the limitations. And I find that very helpful as a, as a, as a sub-debate in the cybersecurity cyber community, this healthy skepticism there. Um, and then your other question, where are the next... Uh, what are the current fads that I that I see? You know, it's difficult. It's it's really difficult because on the one hand, it, in a fad somewhere buried deep in the in the details, there may be actually uh, some sometimes a, a valid argument and you know exciting technologies emerging emerging. But when I hear cyber today, or indeed machine learning is is moving into that direction as well, it's really interesting. Um, I mean, we applied it in a recent paper ourselves. But at the same time, the more people who don't really understand the technology talk about it, the more it's like a chewing gum that loses its flavor, the more people chew on it. And I think we're losing a lot of flavor right now. Yeah, I think the way that people talk about it is a really interesting question. I know that you have something of a pet peeve with the way that people overuse just the word cyber and use it as a standalone for different things. And um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about a little bit more about the way that people are describing these problems and whether you think that they have an understanding of even the different things that people are talking about in the debate and if that makes a difference in awareness. It's a, it's a tricky one. Ultimately, I think we're looking at... Um, sort of in-group, out-group dynamics. If that in any field you will have a core group of people or sometimes multiple 
separate core groups of people who drive the exciting ideas, who you know are really innovative, who are, have their finger at the pulse of what's happening. And if they see that, um, you, you know, you'll find the same dynamic in pop culture and music and the arts. If suddenly somebody, everybody else is using their terminology, they will drop that terminology and move on to the next thing to maintain their in-group, uh, you know, perception. And I think cyber is a, when I, whenever I use cyber, I feel I, I, it sounds just ro wrong and cringeworthy. Um, and I think, uh, for instance, when I tweet, uh, I, I, I police myself because I, I say, okay, if I, if I would call this cyber now, I know exactly I would be made fun of by X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what are you trying to use in its space? Information security? You know, something that's more precise, like maybe a specific computer network intrusion, CNE, a hack, um, whatever it is. Um, it's not a very precise term, obviously. And do you think that the, that kind of precision will ultimately help people understand what this, some of these things that could be mysterious to people who aren't in the space? I think so, yeah. I mean, de facto what we have today is the situation that the more somebody uses cyber as a standalone term, mm -hmm. the less technical insight they have. I think that's a rule of thumb. That oh, come on. I heard from an expert that the cyber is big. It's going to be big. Um, uh, <laughs> okay, so let's move we on. We don't have to go there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> One of the areas that a great deal of your work has been on is attribution of attacks, which, of course, has been at the center of cybersecurity. I'm afraid what term to use here, but basically events that range from the Sony breach to OMB to more recently the things that have played out with um, uh, and maybe pertaining to the U.S. election and the DNC. What do we get right and wrong in the identification of who is behind network breaches? How can we get better at it? Yeah, that's a, a fascinating field, attribution. And it, it, it is getting ever more important as we see more breaches uh, occur occurring and, and more sophisticated political hacks with leaks attached to them. Uh, the DNC breach is the most prominent one right now, but not the only one. I think it's important to understand that to look at attribution as a cross. There's the horizontal attribution and there's, there's vertical attribution. Horizontal is to say, okay, we have the DNC breach here and we have uh, the German parliament breach there. And we can look at the malware samples, and the command and control infrastructure that was used in both cases and compare. And it's a bit like finding the same fingerprints in two different burgl burgled houses or, the, using, or, f or seeing somebody use the same flight car. You can make these lateral horizontal links. And the level of certainty that we, can, that we can achieve on that level is quite high. But then asking the, the vertical question, who did it? Was it who actually breached both of these targets? There, I think we have to be just honest and, 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 and realistic. You will not find that kind of information in the digital forensics exclusively. You may have to do an offensive operation against a specific target, like an ISP, to make a link. You may need human informants or intercepted communication in order to make that link. Basically, what you need is an intelligence agency, most likely, not just a private sector company. And you've also done some work on the deterrence debate. Do you think that deterrence in the digital world is possible? Deterrence is, uh, um, is a fascinating subject here that often, and I think, uh, Peter, you've pointed that out very eloquently in a recent testimony you gave uh, in Congress, 
deterrence is very different in this space than it is in in uh, in in the cold was in the cold war nuclear deterrence and i would just um point out one of the key features is that the goal is not to avoid offensive action but just to moderate it to keep it within bounds to to de- to manage a problem not to solve a problem but perhaps to make it more concrete if you look at the at Russia, recent Russian operations and compare them to recent Chinese uh, operations. Deter- uh, attrib- attribution has a very different effect. It, attribution seems to have deterred some Chinese activity because we saw a drop-off. But, uh, but, so it deterred the activity, but it did not deny success to the Chinese because they obviously can still use the data that they stole. In the Russian case, the opposite applied. It did not deter Russian activity because they're finding, oh, we got caught. A couple of uh, experts called us out, even some anonymous uh, sources to the New York Times. But it still works. The political influence campaign still works. But here, attribution done by the president or done by by Comey, the head of the FBI, would deny their effect because then once the U.S. government would have thrown its weight behind attribution here, it would be more difficult for the American press to just use these documents and spread uh, information that actually uh, the, the operators want them to spread. So what should be the response? I think the response has to be uh, public and it has to be well-crafted and articulated. It, it should make clear that Russia is ultimately behaving like some form of rogue state here and is not you know, not behaving like a respectable member of the international community. We know that Putin especially um, has, and not, not just Putin, but his entire system, they're very, they want to be taken seriously, obviously, but they're behaving in a way right now that makes it very hard to take them, take them seriously. And while we're talking about all of this, I do want to remind our listeners that you actually wrote a book called Cyber War Will Not Take Place. Do you still think that? I mean, the, uh, the title of the book was a, provocation um, to, to critique that, that phrase, cyber war. But, uh, you know, that current, the current campaign that we're facing, which could still escalate from here uh, towards uh, November 8th and especially November 9th, actually the day after the election, uh, difficult to predict. I think this is one of the most serious cyber attacks, if you want to call it that, that we've ever seen, one of the most consequential ones. Not technically, it's not like the blackout in, in, in Ukraine, but on a political level, I think this is more significant than possibly any other cyber attack than, that we, than we've ever seen. So uh, a lot is at stake here. A lot of credibility is at stake. Because what the Russians, I think the, the evidence is quite strong here, what uh, the Russian intelli- intelligence community are doing here is that setting a de facto norm. And just two days ago, we learned that the German government uh, made public a breach against German MPs across all parties and explicitly said this has to be seen in relation to what's happening in the United States. Same actor. The MO will be applied in other countries as well. One of the things that I find interesting here um, is that you describe it as setting a precedent, um, and yet we've seen this kind of activity uh, globally. So it feels very new 
very different to Americans, very unique. This is the way we, of course, look at the world. And yet there's a pattern of this kind of activity, whether it's um, contemporaneously in Germany to uh, a little bit earlier in Hungary, targeting the Baltics, targeting the Brexit campaign in the UK. So, you know, kind of arguably the the pattern, the precedent's already been set. It's just now we're uh, waking up to it in each of our unique manners. Um, one of the more challenging parts of whether it's the, and you know, even here we're doing an attribution, Russian yeah. attacks, be it on um, the DNC and other American political institutions, or as you said, Chinese attacks, intellectual property theft, is that some parts of it uh, arguably have been done not by clear-cut government actors, but by non-government actors uh, who may or may not be operating on behalf of the government. But what I want to get at is that you, you've actually done some work on this, um, and it connects back to the, the question that, that Sarah brought in of how do we think about deterrence when it's not a Cold War framework of two governments, but it's non-state actors? Are there different periods of history we can learn from, different insights? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is a, a key aspect here, and it's very, very important indeed. So one of the comparisons that, that comes to mind uh, is the is the Israeli experience with uh, non-state violence um, and so for instance in the 1950s the uh, Israeli government tried to deter incursions uh, that's known as the border wars by deterring the Jordanian essentially the Jordanian government they knew that the incursions weren't actually authorized by the Jordanian government but they wanted to increase pressure on them in order for them to do something about it arguably the same thing is happening in Gaza today. Not all uh, mortar attacks are actually authorized or done by Hamas, but Israel is still trying to sort of put pressure on them as, a, as somebody who would, would be in a position to do something against the actual operation. I think we're looking at a quite similar dynamic here in, in, in uh, possibly even in Russia, but, um, but it's a very difficult problem to tackle. So what are the lessons on what works and what doesn't? Yeah, it scares me they're using you're using Israel and border attacks as our example because we haven't seen much success there. Or do I have that wrong? Well, you know, if you if you zoom into what's happening in Israel um, from a ta on a tactical level, there there's significant success. Um, occasionally, it sparks into into an extreme into a more extreme uh, war, in, you know, say in the Gaza Strip. But between these outbursts of violence, I think the IDF is in a relatively uh, good position to manage what's happening. I mean, again, I don't want to over uh, expand the, I don't want to overuse the analogy here. It has very narrow limits. But let's use crime as a, as a comparison. We, we know that, that, you know, crime will continue to happen, whatever criminal activity you, you, you have in mind. The, the goal is to bring it to a level that is tolerable. I think that's a useful way of looking at deterrence of uh, computer network attacks. And is there one thing that you could say that would be a deterrent to a non-state actor in particular? To a non-state actor? Mm -hmm. Or to the government that can control it. Yeah. I think we have to be very case-specific. Um, that's another insight from both criminological research on deterrence as well as from the Israeli experience. We can't just make general uh, uh, statements. Well, let's use the two cases that, that you introduced, um, the Russian information warfare campaign, and then the other would be intellectual property theft uh, that's been attributed to China writ large. Well, you know, the Department of Justice and the FBI indictment of these five uh, serving PLA uh, members 
um, forget the precise date when it was done, um, approximately one and a half years ago, seems to have had an effect. That wasn't the only uh, driver that, that caused the Xi administration to change their behavior, but, but it seems to have worked uh, at least to a degree, including them uh, controlling you know, rogue PLA units and possibly even companies that are active in this space. We don't know exactly how this is happening, but it seems to happen. The, we know the output is going down. Um, in the case of the Russian uh, case study there, it, 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 the, the, we know less about uh, the possibilities of how to how to deter, and we have also haven't haven't even really tried yet. So we always close our podcast with uh, one question, and that's maybe the most important question. But what is your favorite depiction of cybersecurity in fiction? Favorite as in you love it and you think it's very accurate, or favorite as in you love to hate it? In fiction. In fiction, I know. This is um, a- that's a tough one. <laughs> I, when I read fiction, I try to avoid uh, reading about exactly the same subject. Um, but... Uh, um, you know, uh, one of my f- favorite uh, films here is not strictly cybersecurity, more uh, artificial intelligence, the future of machines. And this is uh, it's so well known that, it, that, that some, uh, some of you will find it boring, but I absolutely adore 2001 Stanley Kubrick's uh, film of, uh, on, based on Arthur Clarke's book, The Space, Ode- Space Odyssey. It's the way he depicts the... Uh, emerging uh, emotional development of the computer, the spaceship, turning human ultimately. That's what it, that's what I think what's happening. It's a singularity moment in in space there, and then the psychedelic final scene, which uh, plays with uh, a, a theme that then pops up in pop culture as well. It's just brilliant. Great. Well, thank, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Thomas Red for a great conversation. And join us next month when we'll interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. And subscribe to us at New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. And I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for Passcode at csmpasco.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Games with production assistance from Simone McPhail. Talk to you in a month. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to MK2 for their songs, The Big Score, and Cold Killa. To learn more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.